Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Oh, good. It hasn't started yet. More coffee, hun? Yes, Angel. Thank you. Joy Lynn, finish your hot chocolate, honey. It's getting late. Time for bed. I wonder if anyone from back home is tuning in. Is it bad if a little part of me doesn't mind if Mississippi State wins? I do like an underdog. David and Goliath is my favorite Bible story. It's not bad, but it is in direct competition with your husband's alma mater. Yes, but you were never sporty. Oh, what a play! This is a great game. Joy Lynn, after this play, you're going to brush your teeth. Finish that hot chocolate, please. boy, Run that ball! Oh my, the crowd must be going wild. Would you mind turning it down just a little, dear? I'm going to try to finish my book. What on earth? Uh, could be one of the girls. A babysitting emergency, boogeyman in the closet, some sort of thing. I'll get it. Well, fancy meeting you here. Thought everyone would be at the game. You doing all right? We've got a phone in here if you're having car trouble. Hot coffee? You okay now? Come on in, get out of the humidity. It's dark outside, don't stand on the porch like gator bait. No. No! Please, don't hurt us. Oh, Oh God! No! Hi, and welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This week, we'll be exploring the Sims family murders in Tallahassee, Florida, in 1966. Known as the night Tallahassee lost its innocence, the brutal slayings of Dr. Robert Sims, his wife Helen, and their 12-year-old daughter, Joy Lynn, rattled the growing southern city of Tallahassee so much that its government even canceled their Halloween celebrations. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Tallahassee, Florida, 1966, looked like a town right out of a Norman Rockwell print. At that time, the city's population hovered at around 80,000, big enough to technically be considered a metropolis, but small town enough that nobody locked their doors. Neighbors knew one another and babysat each other's kids, and there was plenty of small town gossip. In 1966, the Sims family was one of the most well-known, well-respected families in town. Dr. Robert Sims, age 42, was one of the nation's foremost pioneers in computer technology and programming. He was a household name among his contemporaries. His wife, Helen Sims, was 34 and had a sterling reputation around town. 
Other Tallahassee wives envied her beauty and admired her dedication as the local church's secretary. The Sims had three hard-working and well-liked daughters, Judy and Jenny, who are both honor students at the local high school, and 12-year-old Joy Lynn. Some sources refer to Jenny as Virginia or Jeannie, but for the sake of consistency, we'll stick with Jenny throughout this podcast. On the surface, the Sims were the perfect Floridian family, religious, hardworking, exemplary citizens. Girls, breakfast is ready. I know none of you like cold eggs. Coming, Mom. Ah, Helen, everything smells delicious as usual. I don't know how you do it. It's not rocket science, dear, just eggs and hash browns. Rocket science honestly sounds easier to me. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, yummy. Thanks, Mom. Hash browns! You need a full tank of gas to get you through that science test fifth period, right, honey? (sighs) Don't remind me. I know you've studied adequately. Adequately? She was under the covers with a flashlight all night reading again. You snitch. As long as you keep making National Honor Society, I can't fault you for reading. But they need their sleep, dear. More eggs? Yes, please, Mom. I'll take some, too. Mom, I don't know how you can do all this and get to work on time. When I grow up, I want to be just like you. Oh, Judy, that's sweet. But you don't want to be just like me because I didn't have time to pack your lunches. We'll do it. Here, Jenny, here's a bag. You think you'll be working late again this week, honey? No, dear. I actually think I'll be home early today. And keep light hours the rest of the week. We'll talk later. All right. I've already got the ham, bathing, and honey for dinner tonight. What would we do without you? I shudder at the thought. That's our school bus. Love you, Mom. Bye, Dad. Have a good day, girls. Hmm. Such good kids. We really lucked out. Yes, we really did. If the Sims were such an idyllic family, then why were they brutalized late one night in a murder so notorious The media still refers to it as Tallahassee losing its innocence. That's what we're here this week to find out. October 22, 1966 was a big night for Tallahassee. Florida State University and Mississippi State University were facing off in a home football game so highly anticipated Practically everyone in town was going. Besides the surge of tailgaters coming into town for the big game, the Florida State Fair was also in Tallahassee that week, meaning Tallahassee was much more crowded than usual. Which means everyone in Tallahassee was busy. Kids who were old enough to babysit quickly found business was booming. Some parents wanted to make a family affair out of the game, but for others, it was a date night. That was how Jenny and Judy Sims wound up with babysitting charges of their own that night. Little did the girls know when they left for work, that night was the last time they'd see their parents alive. Around kickoff time, Mr. and Mrs. Sims settled down in front of their radio to listen to the big game with their 12-year-old daughter, Joy Lynn. They obviously weren't big enough sports fans to venture out into the stadium, but Dr. and Mrs. Sims were both natives of Meridian, Mississippi, and Dr. Sims got his Ph.D. from Florida State. So this game was probably more nostalgic for them than most. Around 11 p.m., Jenny Sims arrived home from her babysitting job. She entered the house to find the TV and radio still playing, but her parents and sister were nowhere in sight. 
There were full coffee cups still in the living room. A filled ashtray was left undisturbed on the coffee table. No signs of a struggle, but no Sims family either. Which, at this time of night, was simply unheard of. Mom! Dad, I'm home! Mom? Dad? That's weird. That sound drives Dad nuts. Joy Lynn? Joy! You better be tucked in bed or you're in big trouble, little lady. No. Nope. Not here. Hmm. The bedroom door's closed. Mom? D Dad? Hello? Is anyone home? When Jenny Sims got up the nerve to open the door to her parents' bedroom, she was greeted with a macabre sight, to say the least. Jenny opened the door of the master bedroom to find her father, mother, and 12-year-old sister tied up and butchered. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Well, I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. In October of 1966, Tallahassee was very much still a small town. Neighbors didn't lock their doors and they let their kids play outside together until the street lights came on. After the Florida State University football game ended, sleepy, small-town Tallahassee started returning home for another normal Florida night. But for Jenny and Judy Sims, that night would end any sense of normalcy forever. When Jenny Sims returned from a babysitting job and opened the door to her parents' bedroom, she was greeted with an abattoir of epic proportions. Now, there are a few conflicting accounts of the exact positioning of the Sims family's bodies when Jenny found them. Most accounts place Joy Lynn and Helen on the floor by the bed. Some say that Helen was on the other side of the room. Some say she was next to Joy Lynn. Some sources suggest that Robert was bound and gagged, sitting up in a chair, but most reports we read say that he was laying on the bed on one side, facing his wife and daughter. Either way, it's probable that the killer or killers made Dr. Sims watch some part of what was happening to his wife and daughter before shooting him in the head. All three bodies were bound around the wrists and ankles using fairly sophisticated knots. They were also gagged with things already found around the house, like neckties, whole pairs of pantyhose, and lingerie. The gags were so severe that it's a wonder Dr. Sims especially did not suffocate from his. All three had been shot. Helen and Robert in the head, 
Joylin's clothes were disheveled, and she had multiple stab wounds, laying in a pool of her own blood. To add to the urgency of the situation, somehow Dr. and Mrs. Sims were still breathing. Jenny ran into the kitchen and picked up a phone book. This was before the days of 911, and in Tallahassee in 1966, the local funeral home also doubled as the ambulance service. While she was dialing the phone, Jenny noticed the kitchen door that led outside to the family carport was open, which was unusual. And she was fairly sure it hadn't been open when she first got home. More scared than ever, thinking the killer could have still been inside the house when she first found her family, Jenny rang the Bevis Funeral Home for an ambulance, and 16-year-old Rocky Bevis took the call. Bevis Funeral Home, this is Rocky. Hello? Is someone there? You all right over there? Rocky, this is Jenny Sims at 641 Muriel Court. Jenny, I didn't even recognize your voice. What's wrong? Jenny, what happened? What's wrong? Something terrible has happened. Please come. I'm getting the keys. I'll be right there. Rocky, don't leave me alone. Ambulance is on its way, Jenny. The ambulance is on its way. Son, everything all right? Dad, thank goodness. Who was that on the phone, son? That was Jenny Sims. Robert and Helen's daughter? Something's real wrong. We need to go to 641 Muriel Court right away. Hand me the keys, son. Hurry. In subsequent interviews and a documentary released on the Sims family murders called 641 Muriel Court, Rocky goes on to say that as soon as he heard Jenny's voice on the phone, he knew something was very, very wrong. Tallahassee was just starting to return home from the big game when Rocky Bevis picked up Jenny's call. His father, funeral home director Russell Bevis, had just returned home from the game himself to find his son on a seemingly desperate phone call. Within minutes, Russell and Rocky were speeding over to the Sims home at 641 Muriel Court in their ambulance. They were the first to arrive on the scene between 11.23 and 11.25 p.m. Oh, Jesus! Oh, Jesus, even little Joy Lynn! Shh, they might still be around. I'll hit these lights just in case. You don't think... They're still breathing, Rocky. Quick, go get a knife from the kitchen so we can cut these bonds. That poor, poor girl. Here, Dad. This should work. Dr. Sims is gone. But Mrs. Sims is still breathing, though. So hurry and cut her bonds so we can put her in the ambulance. Unfortunately, Russell quickly discerned that there was nothing he could do for 12-year-old Joy Lynn. She'd been shot and stabbed seven times and was declared dead at the crime scene. Dr. Sims also expired shortly after the Bevises arrived. The Bevises loaded Mrs. Sims, who was still breathing, onto the ambulance and rushed her to the hospital. By this time, law enforcement had started to arrive at the scene as well. The crime initially got labeled as a motor vehicle accident on police radio, but was corrected within minutes to a homicide. The first two cops to arrive on scene were Captain Billy Bennett and Sergeant Cooper Donnelly. One of the first things Bennett and Donnelly noticed when they initially canvassed the crime scene 
was the eerie extent to which things remained undisturbed. There was coffee still in cups resting on the table, a full ashtray on the floor, throw pillows perched in their proper spots on the sofa. Money, jewelry, and other valuables left out in plain view, untouched. Which ruled out a random burglary. These pillows look set up the way they're supposed to be? Just in a row across the sofa like that? I think so. Arlene calls those throw pillows, says they're for decoration. The amount of stuff women waste money on for decoration never ceases to amaze me. <laughs> me neither. Fact remains, though, that most of this living room looks undisturbed. Couch and chairs are still in place. That ashtray on the floor there is not even spilled. No broken dishes, spilled coffee. There wasn't any kind of fight in here at all. You think they knew the killer? I think if they did know the killer already, they weren't threatened by him. Let him right in the front door out of the humidity, like any decent neighbor would. No good deed goes unpunished. You know what else? If the house wasn't really messed with, and the family's valuables are still here... Whoever did this wasn't looking for money, or anything nice to pawn. Exactly. Meaning this was probably premeditated. Whoever did this picked the Sims ahead of time. You think it was someone jealous of Robert? Over his work? Maybe. But what gets me is the most damaged body was the little girl's. Joy Lynn's. There are sick, sick people out there. Maybe somebody was after her. That night at the crime scene, law enforcement couldn't make sense of the chaotic violence contained in this otherwise ordered little house. But they quickly ruled out a robbery and doubted the culprit was a transient just passing through. Moreover, the nature of the murders felt personal. Law enforcement discovered that Dr. Sims vomited behind his gag, suggesting perhaps he knew what was about to happen to his family, was conscious throughout the attack, and was quite literally sick when he realized he wasn't able to stop it. Nobody would ever want to be rendered that helpless while he watched his family get brutalized. That kind of psychological torture is violence in and of itself. Not to mention the nature of Joy Lynn Sims' injuries. The multiple stab wounds left all over her exposed chest and torso were extensive, excessively violent, and even vaguely sexual. The nature of the murders led investigators to believe that whoever did this to Joy Lynn Sims and her parents had an axe to grind that was deeply, deeply personal. And, based on the subject's knowledge of the layout of the Sims' home and articles inside that were used for gags and blindfolds, investigators considered that the killer, or killers, had either been inside the Sims' home before the murders or had been canvassing the house for a long time. Unfortunately, Bennett and Donnelly also noticed that Joy Lynn's shirt had been pulled up, exposing her chest and torso, and her underpants pulled down. Besides being shot in the head, most sources agree that she was stabbed between six and seven times in the chest and torso area with a large butcher knife. The bodies of the Sims parents, including Helen Sims, who was frequently referred to as a beauty and even modeled hairstyles for a local catalog from time to time, remained fully clothed. Someone did that to my daughter, I would go down swinging. By the look of Dr. Sims, I'd say he sure as hell tried. Poor guy. He's a big boy, too. It's a wonder they were able to keep him down so easy. Must have been a big boy to intimidate them that much. Or boys. 
Because Dr. Sims was a relatively large man, investigators immediately considered the possibility that they were dealing with multiple killers, and with the state of Joy Lynn's body, that they were multiple killers with an uncomfortable interest in the 12-year-old. This made Captain Donnelly wonder if perhaps the motive had something to do with a possible sexual fixation on Joy Lynn. The idea that the killer or killers maybe suffered from erectile dysfunction and used a knife as a substitute penetrative instrument fit with the criminal psychology of that time period and has never totally been discounted. And given that 1966 was long before modern advancements in forensic science and DNA, it is highly possible that Joy Lynn Sims was sexually assaulted and that evidence will never be recovered. But that night, to the naked eye of the frazzled, traumatized first responders on scene, the extent and origin of Joy Lynn's injuries was impossible to determine. And lack of modern forensics likely kept investigators in the dark. Now, by this time, the Tallahassee Police Department had company at the crime scene, including an investigator named Larry Campbell, who was with the sheriff's office. Larry, a young rookie at the time, was on his way out to celebrate his 24th birthday when he got the call to 641 Muriel Court. First, he heard it was a car accident with one fatality. Then, he heard it was a car accident with two fatalities. Finally, when Larry heard the truth that it was a homicide, he knew he wasn't going to make it to his birthday party that night. Unbeknownst to Campbell, the call he received that night would change his life and this case would become an obsession for him over his entire career. Because when he first laid eyes on that horrific scene, any remorse for missing out on birthday celebrations quickly evaporated. Walking into this crime scene stunned Campbell and local law enforcement just as much as it stunned 16-year-old Rocky Bevis when he picked up Jenny Sims' phone call that night. The Sims family murders was the first time many people's lives in Tallahassee, including those investigating the case, had been touched so personally by violence. Officer Brady? Officer Brady, what's going on in there? We've heard terrible things. Brady, are you all right? You look like you've seen a ghost. It's just the strangest thing. Bill, help him. He looks like he's about to faint. I got you, officer. Just have a seat on the steps there. There you go. Can someone get a glass of water? Even the police were stunned by the sheer violence of the situation. The Sims family murders was the first case of its caliber that local law enforcement had ever seen. Unfortunately, this showed a bit in the initial investigation. In the documentary, 641 Muriel Court, sources close to the Sims murder investigation, including Jeremy Mutz, a former state prosecutor who worked on the case at the time, reports sloppy mistakes on the part of local law enforcement that resulted in contaminating the crime scene. Little did they know at the time that these momentary mistakes perhaps doomed the case forever. Apparently, several law enforcement officers were too shocked by the grisly crime scene that greeted them to remember to put on gloves, resulting in thousands of fingerprints to sort through. They also didn't take the great care that Rocky Bevis and his father took not to disturb anything at the Sims' home. At one point, investigators even made a pot of coffee in the Sims' family kitchen because they figured they were in for a long night. 
Jesus H. Christ, what a bloodbath. I've never seen anything like it. I have, but only because growing up, my uncle ran a pig farm and used to make me help him clean up after a slaughter. I need to sit down for a second. Here, here's a chair. Let me help you. There we go. Want some water? I, I better, yeah, thanks. Glasses are in the kitchen, I think. Looks like Tom's making some coffee. Oh, thank heavens. We'll be here all night at this rate. Investigators from Leon County are on their way, too, I heard. You're kidding. Gonna be a party in here. Maybe we should tell Tom to fire up more coffee. You ready to go back in there? Yeah. Oh, oh no, there's blood on my shoe. I didn't even realize. Uh, wipe it off here on the carpet. Don't want to be tracking it home to Nancy and the kids. No, you're right about that. Nancy will be scared enough as it is. Come on, let's get back in there. Get some pictures before half of Tallahassee gets here. The frenzy of sirens, flashbulbs, and swarming police blues had drawn quite a crowd. There were even reports of neighbors wandering through the house, disoriented and probably traumatized, contaminating the crime scene even further. Some even took a souvenir or two with them. Now, as we previously stated, this shocking act of violence rocked sleepy Tallahassee to its core. So it's understandable that in their panic, law enforcement might have forgotten key forensic protocols. Looking back today, however, with a little hindsight, many folks involved in the Sims case, as well as academics who studied it, currently feel as though it's likely that their mistakes tainted the evidence and investigation irreparably. In 2016, former assistant state attorney Jeremy Mutz told WCTV that he was fired from his job earlier that year by the state's attorney to cover up for the sheriff's department's mishandling of the Sims case. He has since spoken out in a number of publicly accessible online forums criticizing steps taken in the Sims murder investigation. Mutz asserts that the case was mishandled from the beginning by both the Tallahassee PD and the Leon County Sheriff's Department. A situation that only worsened when the two law enforcement offices got into a bit of a pissing contest over the case. The Leon County Sheriff's Office ended up winning this contest and planted their flag at 641 Muriel Court that night, even though Tallahassee PD had arrived on the scene first. After the Sheriff's Department took over the case, the erratic investigation process continued. What on earth? Bob, it's Jerry with the Leon County Sheriff's Office. We need to talk to you all right now. What is the meaning of this? Do you have any idea what time it is? Just trying to make sure everyone's all right. We were fine until about a minute ago when you scared Lorraine out of her wits and me right out of bed. Apologies, but we need to ask you a few questions. Dear, is something the matter? Did anyone unusual call your home today? I beg your pardon? Who did you talk to on the phone today? Uh, I don't... At the moment, I don't recall. Would you like to come in for some tea? No time, ma'am. Did y'all see any strange cars around the neighborhood today or yesterday? Uh, uh, I don't... I don't think so. You sure? Hmm. I ain't out of bed at God knows what hour. No, I'm not sure. Can you leave a card or something so we can maybe call you in the morning? My direct line's on here. Sorry for the interruption. 
The sheriff's department ran around the immediate vicinity of the Sims' home, banging on doors at 2, 3 in the morning, and grilling the neighbors about their activities that day, grasping desperately for a lead. But none came. By sunup, the sheriff's office had no suspects, no murder weapon, not even a guess as to the killer's escape route. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, let's continue our story. On October 23, 1966, the day after the bodies of Dr. Robert Sims, his wife Helen, and their daughter Joy Lynn were discovered, investigators still came up empty-handed on suspects and could not find a murder weapon. They did, however, have a rough timeline, based mostly on what local girls babysitting in the area overheard. You said you heard a cat crying? Screaming. I'm pretty sure it was the Sims cat. It was in the direction of the Sims house. Did you note what time that was? Maybe 10.15, 10.30. I honestly didn't. I figured they got into a fight with one of the strays in the neighborhood again. When did you say you heard the scream? Around 10 p.m. But it didn't sound urgent, if you know what I mean. Explain. Well, the only reason I even heard anything at all was because I was babysitting at a house on the next block. You know kids when they have a babysitter, they push the limits, stay up past bedtime. It sounded like a playtime scream, not a bad scream. You're sure it was at the Sims house? It came from that direction. Well, where is this ravine you heard these noises? Exactly. You know the one. You need me to say it for the record? Oh, okay. It's the one that cuts behind four houses on those two blocks. The Sims house is one of them. Can you state, for the record, what exactly you heard? Why, sure. Around 10.30, 10.45, I was packing up to leave after putting my charges to bed. I had the game playing real low on the downstairs radio, so I knew when the parents would be home. You were awake the whole time? Didn't nod off at all? No, sir. Awake and clear-minded. Around 10.30 or 10.45, I heard dogs barking and some sticks snapping around in the ravine out back. How many dogs? Uh, I don't know. Maybe three? It's hard to tell. What kind of noises in the ravine? Leaves scattering, sticks snapping. Honestly, not a lot of noise. When the dogs started barking, I just figured it was a deer. The Sims family home bordered a steep ravine that the neighborhood kids would often all play in together. In the days immediately following the Sims murders, sheriffs scoured that ravine, both for the gun that left the 32 caliber slugs and for signs that the killer or killers used that ravine to escape. Despite their best efforts, they again came up empty-handed. It seems as though whoever killed the Sims family took their gun with them and vanished into thin air. The Leon County Sheriff's Department had never seen a case this violent in nature before and were grasping at straws in terms of finding possible suspects. Hello, gentlemen. You look a little old to be in the market for the latest Encyclopedia Brown books. Can I help you? Ma'am, we're with the Leon County Sheriff's Office investigating the Sims murder. Bless your hearts. I had Joy Lynn in class. It's just terrible. Yes, ma'am. As I said, we're investigating the case, and we have a rather strange request. Anything I can do. We're going to need to see a list of who's checked out Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Oh, 
Oh my. Do you think the killer could have gotten the idea from literature? Just covering all our bases, ma'am. We'd really appreciate that list. Of course. One minute. Investigators noticed that the Sims murders were similar in randomness and brutality to the Clutter murders. So they wondered if perhaps the killer looked for inspiration or instruction between the cover pages of Capote's infamous book. The Clutter family, like the Sims family, had been bound, gagged, and brutally murdered in their own home in an idyllic small town that did not lock its doors. And, like the Sims family murders, the clutter crime scene showed a mysterious lack of a struggle. Investigators wondered whether or not someone perhaps read Capote's book and was inspired to copycat the grisly crimes. However, this was more or less grasping at straws, a desperate attempt to find anything that might help them understand the mind of such a cold-blooded killer. But, as might be expected, that lead ran dry too. Soon, investigators' last hope a possible victim testimony from Helen Sims also faded away. After sustaining three gunshot wounds, including two to the head, and lasting nine days on life support, Helen Sims passed away on October 31, 1966. Law enforcement and neighbors alike feared the truth about what happened in the Sims' house that night died with her. After Helen Sims and her family were buried, it was as if the whole of Tallahassee had a panic attack. News media then and now refers to the Sims family murders as when Tallahassee lost its innocence. And the city leaned into that in a big way. Gun sales skyrocketed. A town that prided itself on never locking its doors suddenly didn't have enough locksmiths to handle all the business. People were locking, deadbolting, practically barricading themselves in their homes. That year, 1966, Tallahassee officially canceled Halloween celebrations. Neighbors whose kids used to play on the front lawn together now looked at each other sideways. Could there really be a killer hiding in plain sight? The meager amount of evidence the sheriff's department collected pointed towards a killer who was familiar with the Sims family. Which many Tallahassee residents realized meant perhaps there was a monster in their midst. Rumor has it that some women signed up for self-defense classes and even filled water pistols with ammonia and carried them around in their purses for self-defense. As Leon County Sheriff Mike Wood put it, We woke up one morning and all of a sudden we were in an evil world. Life as Tallahassee knew it would never be the same. But the investigation was just getting started. Despite the tainted crime scene and lack of evidence, despite the unfortunate passing of all the key witnesses, the police still had several promising leads. Leads so promising, one officer we've already met was convinced he knew who the killers were for almost 50 years. Join us next week as we discuss the suspects the cops questioned immediately after the killings and the ones who did not emerge as viable possibilities until months or even years later. And we'll discuss the young couple who law enforcement was positive committed the crime and who are still roaming free to this day because they are too crafty to give the sheriff's department an opportunity to charge them.
Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts. Tune in Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into the Sims family murders. We'd like to thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Lorelai Ignis and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Nick Masu, Sarah Miller-Cruz, and Steve Pinto.